0: My name is Nico Risco. It's really a pleasure to be with you here today, Allison, discussing this research. I am Associate Director of the Center for Global Emergency Care at Johns Hopkins and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine.
1: Great. Hi, and I'm Kaylin Werner. I am a health economist, and this research was done as part of my PhD work while I was at the University of Cape Town pursuing a PhD in emergency medicine. So it's great to be able to speak on this work that's very close to my heart. Thanks so much Alison.
2: Thank you both so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I'm really excited to hear more about your study. Really enjoyed reading it. So the first question that I wanted to ask you was about how you did the study in the sense that because our audience includes people who are new to the field of global health and want to learn more about how to conduct great research studies, I just wanted to do a really quick walkthrough of the process of a systematic review like yours and the types of challenges that you might have run into while you were designing it and carrying it out.
1: Yeah. I might go ahead and start, and I'll let Nico jump as he sees fit, but I've done a few systematic literature reviews, and I think that the main thing for any researcher to keep in mind and the main thing that can be a challenge is that it really has to be recorded and reproducible methodologies. So I think really kind of the unwieldy growing number of studies that you have to search through and how you approach and decide which studies to include and not include is really the main Methodology that you have to keep in mind starting from the beginning. So, we really take a multi step approach that, again, is used and could be used by anybody who is able to get their hands on the search string. So, the terms we use to search all the databases, and they should theoretically then be able to copy our steps. And if they were to find the same studies, they would be able to also include and exclude studies based off of the criteria we would have set up and hopefully get to the same number of final studies to be included. I think when it comes to emergency medicine for this particular systematic review, one of the things we found challenging was how to define what falls within and outside of emergency medicine. That was particularly challenging simply because we have to use a series of different terms to try and capture all of the published literature out there. And I think that we found there isn't only one term often used for either emergency care or emergency medicine that's able to capture all the different facets that it covers. So for us, that was definitely one of the challenges in designing our study. What terms do we use to make sure that we're getting all the literature that's out there? So I think that, that for me was was really where we where we had to play around with it a bit. And then throughout this kind of process of systematic literature reviews, we have two reviewers independently screening studies. And so that gives it a little bit more robustness as well. So it's not only a single opinion. And this is less of a challenge, but just a step to go through in systematic reviews. We would have to take some time to reconcile any differences we had in voting And we spent a lot of time discussing various studies, if we had different opinions on them, whether or not they should be included or not. So I think those are
2: my main takeaways from this particular review. I think the point that you just made was really important and something that a person who hasn't undertaken one of these reviews probably wouldn't necessarily have anticipated. So thank you for sharing about that. I also wondered about the specific filter that you mentioned using. You said that there was a low and middle income country filter in Cochrane, which I wasn't even aware of, to be honest. And I was wondering if you thought it was useful and what you thought maybe other people should know about that and how it works.
1: Yeah. I think it's incredibly useful because when you develop your search strings you are essentially trying to think of all of the different words and phrases that capture a concept that you're searching for in this review we really wanted to focus on low resource settings and there's different ways that you can find papers related to that so it can either just be using the term low resource setting low middle income country but if you think about it there's also a whole list of countries so a paper might only state the country name and not refer to that country in the broader context of low resource. So the Cochrane filter is just a really great way to get kind of the full list of countries around the world that are considered to be defined by that definition. They use the World Bank definitions. So that is one caveat is depending on if your research question is, aligns and agrees with the World Bank definition of what is low and middle income, it can just be really useful because essentially you're given all of those words instead of having to craft them from scratch and potentially miss a country or anything like that. It's just quite quick to apply. I think in this context, Nico, we had the assistance of a great librarian team as well, who know how to run these searches quite efficiently. So If I recall correctly, it has been a few years, Nico, that is where the filter came from as well.
0: Yeah, it's having a good librarian is invaluable. I think that would probably be my first, second, and and third suggestions for those embarking on a systematic review, especially if you're part of an academic center, identify your department librarian, and they will be key to setting you up for success. In addition, guidelines are pretty well laid out. For systematic reviews these days. You want to follow the PRISMA guidelines to a T if you want your study published, and you'll probably be required to attest to those by sub journals when you're submitting your paper. And the librarian can help with that. They can help you develop comprehensive search terms that work across multiple databases and languages. We searched five databases for this review, and that's typical these days. And then you need someone to help comb through the duplicates and remove those and often dump your initial findings into a software tool like Covenants or Rayon or one of the others. These software tools make the screening stages much more tolerable and they keep you organized. Remember that for these reviews, you want a fairly big team of reviewers who has the free time (laughs) in their schedule to plow through the review hopefully in the short term, basically as soon as you have the list ready. If you take too long, you always run that risk of needing to update it before the submission. And I've certainly been part of reviews that get endlessly updated and never published. And that's just really draining for us, for anyone on the team. We, I'd say, only had about 1,600 unique articles to search through. Many other topics that are more widely published on are going to have several thousand And these are hard reviews to get through keeping in mind that for each step, you're going to need an independent set of reviewers. So it's daunting and can be a bit mind-numbing work, especially when you get to the full text reads and the data abstraction. So the redundancy is is critical for the robustness. And if you're going to publish it and produce a good review, you need that redundancy, but it's really hard on the team. I think that's all I had to add about, about our process.
2: Thanks for that as well. I think those are really some of the core principles that people need to keep in mind that when you're conducting a review like this, setting things up the right way from the beginning and having the right tools are so key to having a good result that you can publish and be successful with So to get into the content of the study itself a little bit more, you mentioned quite a bit in the paper that this CHEERS or C-H-E-E-R-S guideline and checklist, and I wanted to know if you Kind of learned about that in the process of conducting the review. Was it something you were previously aware of? And I'm happy uh, to take
0: first swing, unless you want. Yeah,
2: to. go ahead and take first
1: swing. It's <laughs> one of those things where it's the Cheers guidelines have become such a part of our lives. It's like hard to remember back how we found it originally. So feel free to yeah,
0: yeah. It's it it's common, almost to the point of becoming essential. I'd say for systematic reviews to. Uh, comment on the quality of studies using some kind of standardized tool. And oftentimes you'll, especially if you have quantitative analyses or data, you want to be extracting some kind of common quantitative indicator from the literature to allow you to do a meta-analysis, which we couldn't quite do based on on the data our studies were presenting. But we did want to give the readers some sort of rigorous analysis of the included studies, and the CHEERS checklist seemed like a natural fit. Kaylin and I have formal graduate-level training in health economics, and CHEERS checklist is gospel in that field when it comes to assessing the quality and transparency of economic evaluations. So I'm sure most of our readers in emergency medicine have never heard of it, and it seems like a, a random thing to bring up. But within health economics, it's quite widely known this checklist came about because the methodology and reporting of economic evaluations in the literature was and still is it, somewhat a, a bit of the wild west and studies were producing results and cost-effectiveness ratios which they would put in their abstract and their headlines but when you look deeper into the modeling it was really difficult to tell what was done well and importantly, whether the modelers themselves, especially if they're part of an advocacy community, were putting their finger on the scale somewhere to bias the results. And so Cheers came about as a really essential tool for not necessarily just grading your methods, but also grading for people who are designing the research, thinking about how to build a transparent and reliable model, and then how to report it so that people really understand what you did and can reproduce it. We presented studies that had any kind of cheers score. We were very forgiving of low scores, but the you know, the health economics community itself hasn't advocated for any kind of particular cutoff. And we just wanted the readers to have some kind of understanding of the measure of confidence around the results of each study. And so we thought presenting that score was essential, even though it was not one of our criteria for exclusion. And I'll give Kaitlin a chance to step in and correct any of the errors I just
1: <laughs> No, I think you covered all the bases that essentially, yeah, it's it's a quite an interesting tool because it can be used both in a sense to assess the quality of a paper, but as Nico mentioned, it's also a great tool in developing economic evaluations. So I, I think each of the items is really something that you should be expected to report or share when you're building a model so that the readers can really understand what assumptions have been made, what caveats there might be to the methods that that somebody's used. And so that's, that's the way that we really used it. To dive a little bit deeper into the checklist, there are different sections. So I have I have listened to some kind of methodology podcasts actually with the, with the team that developed the cheers checklist. And, you know, they've also made arguments about the fact that perhaps not every item on the checklist is of equal weight, but because there are some sections that are related to various elements of how the results are reported versus specific methods chosen. And so they don't endeavor to make any comment on which of those is more valuable or, or that you can one-for-one trade them, but it is just a good kind of yardstick and measure to say if you're reporting less than half of the items that are on this list, it really does draw into question how robust and how much do I as a reader understand really truly what was done in this analysis enough to verify that it is of a good enough quality to be compared against another study that maybe has every item on the checklist reported. So I think that's the manner we used it. And as I said, there isn't exactly a guideline from the CHEERS checklist developers about how they think it should be used to assess quality, but it is, as Nico mentioned, very commonly used across researchers who are in economic evaluations as a measure and a standard. So yeah.
2: Okay. Thanks. And I'm not an economist, but looking at the table you have about quality scoring. It looks like just by having a title and abstract and introduction and just reporting these things, I'm not sure if there are like sub categories that you need to hit or something about the way that you need to do those things, but that already kind of gives you some quality to your study. And I was just interested to see that, if, for example, like it's got title is thing number one. And it just seems like mm-hmm. something that you would imagine 100% of studies would be reporting a title at least. But I just maybe you know don't understand exactly how that score works.
1: Yeah, each of the items on the checklist does have kind of guidance for reporting. And when it comes to title specifically, they're speaking to the idea that it should identify the study as an economic evaluation. It's still quite a low-hanging fruit right? Like most studies should be able to do that. But there may be studies that on first read, you're not able to tell if you're just screening through title and abstract because their title, it doesn't identify it as an economic evaluation. And that would get docked on the on the CHEERS checklist. But you're also correct. Something like abstract is also, they're really just looking for a structured abstract that really highlights key methods. Some of that's a little bit up to interpretation of a reviewer, but I think... Somebody who maybe is new to systematic reviews might be surprised to find out how many studies there are out there that actually either don't have very structured abstracts or very sparse backgrounds or don't clearly indicate their objectives. And I think that's what's nice about this checklist as well as it helps kind of weed those out because as a reviewer, you sense that this probably isn't a very robust study if I'm struggling to find any of these really basic key pieces of information. But This really gives scope to us being able to say there's a reason why it's not just because I feel like this abstract is sparse, (laughs) but it's because I'm not able to tell from the title. It's an economic evaluation. It's because the abstract isn't structured, doesn't tell me about their methods or results. It's just kind of an overview paragraph. And then maybe like the background gives me no context really to why the study was done or anything like that, or, or the approach that was used in the methods and things like that.
2: So with that in mind, considering the scores kind of range from being less than 10 to up to 24, were there certain characteristics that were common to the low quality studies versus the higher quality ones? Like for example, they were older studies maybe that were not as well carried out or not as likely to follow these guidelines?
1: I'm not sure I know exactly. I'll let Nico answer after me. But I do suspect that it would be more difficult to find all of these items on the checklist matched by studies prior to the publishing. Because as we said, it's a little bit of both like chicken and egg in this case where it's now expected, you know, if you're submitting to a journal, they might ask what kind of what guidance have you used in the same way that we mentioned using the PRISMA, a guidance for systematic literature reviews. If you're submitting an economic evaluation, they may ask, please submit the CHEERS checklist and and indicate to us which parts of this occur in each area of your study and what page is it on and all of that. So I think In that sense, since the publishing of the checklist, there will likely be more papers that have been published in adherence to the checklist. So studies maybe from like the 80s or anything like that, it'd be much harder. But some of these items, they're just methodological approaches that have been around for a while. So I can't really say that we assessed a specific difference based on time or as far as I'm recalling. But it is certainly something that I could see like in the broader economic literature, that would totally be true, Allison.
2: So, and to follow on to that, there were a couple of things in the scoring system, the variables that I personally wasn't familiar with. And I was wondering if you could explain to me briefly what the discount rate and the preference valuation are.
1: Yeah, I think these are really interesting ones because once you get into health economics, it's such normal language that it seems, you know, we, Nico and I always struggle with this idea that we're very interested in this overlap of economic evaluation and emergency medicine. And it's always about, you know, deciding what is the tone depending on what audience we're speaking to. So it's great to be able to talk about some of these concepts further, but discount rates are an interesting one. So discounting is a method used to adjust for costs and benefits sometimes, which happen at different times. So particularly in studies, which are looking at interventions and considering both costs and benefits or outcomes, which extend beyond a year. The concept and theory behind that is that there is a different preference and value for having health now and health in the future. So you'd rather have health sooner rather than later. So the value of that extra healthy year now versus in 20 years is much higher. So if you're doing a study that covers 20 years, you want to be able to account for that and say, we're not going to set the same value for being healthy in 20 years as we are today because you you don't want to kind of wait for that. And then conversely, there's also something to be said about um, there's a preference for like money kind of costs more, quote unquote, to say, I guess, to spend now on a budget than to spend on a budget years down the line, right? Like you'd rather say, oh, cool, let's defer that cost. <laughs> so there's just a rate essentially that's applied across both of these items. Sometimes it really does depend on the model. People can either decide to apply it both to cost and outcomes, which I think is best practice if, like I said, the time horizon of the analysis is over a year Or they can just apply it to one or the other if they have a very good rationale. There are recommendations from different uh, health technology assessment bodies. So that would be in the UK, nice. And they recommend something around like 3.5%. So each year you would sort of be losing the value of one healthy state, I suppose, at 3.5% each year. So that is kind of just how we account for those those variations about preference and timing and having to account for all of these different costs and benefits over a period, a time period in which we know they're not all equal at each state and each year.
0: I think one commonplace example that most people understand these days is inflation. And so your your $1 or your $10 is worth more now than your $1 or $10 is going to be worth in 30 years. And including a discount rate in your evaluation takes into account the really the, it, it seems like an abstract concept, but it's, it's really a fact that 30 years from now, that same currency amount is just not going to be worth as much. And so sometimes that's a simple way I have of thinking about this concept, which otherwise can seem really kind of academic and theoretical.
2: So would it be accurate to say that this is a way of applying that principle of inflation to the health of a person?
0: I think so. It it definitely is more commonly used in finances. And it feels a bit unusual to apply it to health, but you also want to think about the life course and what are the most valuable or productive years of a person's life. And this is something that becomes really important in economic evaluations, which tend to favor more youthful years and and work age years over years later in life. And so Oftentimes, and this is all of this is intentionally done in the design of economic evaluations, but oftentimes it will come out such that interventions that save the lives or avert disability of children or young adults, such as interventions that are infectious disease related or trauma related are going to come out as more cost-effective than interventions that address stroke or cardiac arrest, because there's thought to be an economic gain uh, to saving the life of a 20-year-old that goes beyond saving the life of a 65-year-old. And this is something that I would say initially was pretty hotly debated in health economics, but it's really over the last two decades, it's become pretty standard, and I'd say pretty well accepted. And I think it fits with most people's general set of values about really wanting to avert child and infant mortality and save the the lives of young people and prioritize that over interventions that uh, might prolong life of someone who's 70 or 75 years old already. Hopefully I'm not saying anything too controversial, but (laughs) at this point in health economics, it's a pretty well-accepted paradigm.
2: It's logical. It has a little bit of a cold utilitarianism to it, but (laughs) it makes sense. As I was looking through this study, I was particularly surprised when I read that, to give an example of one of the interventions that establishing an ambulance system was highly variable in terms of its cost effectiveness from $18 in Uganda to 506, over 568,000 US dollars in Malaysia per life year saved. And I was so curious about that because as I read that, I was just reacting thinking, wow, that number in Uganda seems so low and the number in Malaysia seems extremely high. And just wondered what your thoughts were on that.
0: Yeah, I thought that that was a really interesting group of studies and results. I think this question gets to the heart of why a quality assessment tool like CHEERS is so important, because small changes in the assumptions of how you model a program can produce these wildly different results. And as a reader or a clinician or a policymaker, what kind of confidence can you place in those values when you see results like this? And even if you go to the primary literature and read the study without a background in economics, how are you going to be able to assess how reliable those findings are? Uh, With these studies, in those particular cases, for example, the Malaysian study modeled an ambulance service, which was really only there to treat cardiac arrest, nothing else. So there were a lot of sunk costs into that EMS system, which did not translate into impact around other conditions like trauma, for instance. Furthermore, that study used cost and input data from New Mexico, actually from a high income environment and constructed a Malaysian scenario based on those high income cost inputs so uh, you have a, a high-income country setting, and then it's sort of the model was transported to a middle-income urban environment. We really don't advocate this approach, and I think you'll note the abysmal cheer score for this study, but I think it's part of why the cost-effectiveness ratio came out so high. On the other hand, the two Ugandan ambulance studies, they were done by different research teams and they ended up coming up with fairly similar results. That's always encouraging. These ambulance services were really pared down compared to what we think of maybe in North America or the US. But given the really long status quo transport times in these settings, the real poor access to care provided. I mean, even this pared down transport service was able to produce a really big difference in access to care and therefore a big difference in outcomes. And these ambulance services were centered around trauma and obstetric emergencies. And we talked about how you always get a little more credit for saving the life of a young person than an older one. So that worked in their benefit as well. So my take home from this group of studies, despite the disparate results I think in general you probably can say that establishing a basic transport system that drastically improves access to emergency care can be a very efficient and effective use of resources whereas building a sophisticated system for a single disease condition in an urban setting that already has decent access to care that's probably not a wise use of those resources
1: yeah I absolutely I I love how Nico described this and Allison, I love that you picked these two studies because Nico and I spent a lot of time discussing this concept and, you know, like, why does it look so different? And I think it really speaks to if you ask people, do they think emergency medicine is expensive? Most people would say yes. They would say it's incredibly expensive. They think of really high tech ambulances and... Uh, You know, needing to have a response time below a certain threshold that would mean an increasing number of ambulances. And I think that that is the approach that was taken in the Malaysian study is really this incredibly taking a lot of detail from an incredibly high resource setting that is not necessarily assessing, is this the most useful use of resources? But they're just saying this is the standard. So this is how it's done in Albuquerque. I think they even use New York and Seattle inputs as well at some point. And they don't really ask, is this appropriate for our setting in Kuala Lumpur? What does it mean? Where's the actual need? Whereas as Nico mentioned, the studies in Uganda were really focusing more on very rural areas um ambulance services that are able to transport individuals to life-saving care and so i think we also love this like contrast because it speaks to a lot of what we were also interested to find out which is are there areas where emergency care really is cost effective but people are just living under a perception that it is it has to be super highly resourced and we have to be spending millions and millions of dollars to have the most high-tech equipment at all times. And that's not comprehensive of what emergency care covers. And especially looking at low and middle income settings where these are maybe like in some of the examples that we looked at, it's ambulance naive or there aren't really ambulances working in that setting. Like how important is just the ability to be able to transport a patient and like what, you know, kind of impact can that make? So- I really love this example and I love kind of how Nico described it and yeah.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think having your commentary on it really gives more of a depth of understanding to it. So I appreciate that perspective. It seems as you were just noting that there are certain things that really stood out to you while you were doing this study. And I was wondering what you thought was the most interesting finding in the study and what was the thing that you learned that you thought was something really striking from doing this?
0: I think that one thing which Kalen got me thinking about, uh, again, was this idea that emergency care is too expensive. And this really prevalent perception and narrative that exists in global public health about emergency care. And you just, from global health funders and people in ministries, you hear this all the time, that emergency care sounds expensive. And I think sometimes people are picturing, you know, an American TV show scenario with a glamorous looking ambulances and ERs that, you know, have every kind of cutting edge technology at their fingertips when what we really want them thinking about is, you know, just the intake area of their district hospital in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, for instance. And What it would be to just reorganize that area to provide effective triage and to have staff that are trained on basic emergency medicine skills and concepts and then just having key supplies to address you know bleeding sepsis hypoxia really basic stuff and it's important to remove the perception of this really high intensity high resource expensive emergency care system and highlight that there are interventions out there that are not expensive and they're incredibly effective.
1: Yeah. And I came to this research from my background is primarily in health economics. And this was one of my first sort of explorations into emergency medicine, emergency care. So for me, one of the most interesting takeaways, which parallels what we've been discussing is really this like heterogeneity of emergency care interventions and services and i think you know some one of the challenges we had in our paper is we couldn't do a meta analysis or really compare some of the outcomes against each other because they were all assessing such different unique and interesting segments and areas of emergency care so for me that was definitely one of the big takeaways and something i learned from colleagues during the time that they would say you've seen one emergency unit, you've seen one emergency unit, like there are not always parallels between what this looks like and it, you know, in Malaysia versus Uganda versus elsewhere. And so I think that was kind of a huge learning and takeaway for me is that, so there's that side that makes it challenging in the assessment, but there's the side of it, which is really exciting and positive, which is there are a lot of creative Context specific solutions, and they're not always going to look the same. And some of them are going to be incredibly cost effective, and some of them are not. And so, it's really about finding those kind of unique threads. But it, it does make it hard to make one solid statement, except the fact that there is definitely potential for interventions to be cost effective. But it has to take a lot of these considerations in when thinking about context and the setting and the needs. But I just found it so wild and interesting. Everything's so different and all the all the outcomes, even, you know, we spoke about the Malaysia Uganda ambulance example. Ambulance systems can look completely different between two settings. And how do you compare those against one another? It's still something I think about and
0: work through. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I think we learned in this research is that we need to reframe the messaging from not whether emergency care is cost-effective, but we have to be specific and talk about what elements of emergency care are cost-effective and also transparent about which elements don't appear to be cost-effective. And that's how we can provide valid and useful counsel to decision-makers who are trying to responsibly steward health funding. And we do think that this evidence can suggest a rational way to build your emergency system piece by piece. And for example, train your nurses in basic emergency care before you buy an MRI machine. I mean, that's really <laughs> a silly and polarized example that's kind of obvious, but it illustrates the the logic that we're trying to encourage in emergency care system development.
2: Yeah, that's clearly so important to point out that just focusing on The basics of resuscitation without getting into anything that has to be high tech or high cost can be incredibly impactful. And also, to go back to what you were originally saying, Nico, I just think that even though obviously we're all biased, but I want to say thank you for doing such great work in showing the value of our work. I just wanted to finally ask you about what you thought the future for doing research in this area of cost effectiveness of emergency care interventions, particularly in the low and middle income country setting, should be the highest priority. I think from
1: my perspective, as I mentioned, coming from a health economics background, the two things that stuck out to me are really improved data collection and data input. So I think that that's one segment that specifically when we're looking at low resource settings, sometimes there isn't the data available to do some of these analyses. So it can make it quite difficult to assess. And I think we noticed that with some of the quality of our studies. To hark back to the Malaysia study again, it's not necessarily robust for one context to be using inputs from the US. They don't always apply. So I would love to see, you know, improved records and the ability for that analysis to be done based off of consistently captured data over a period of time. And then secondly, one thing that did come out is I don't feel that our the studies we found really captured the true value of emergency care and emergency care systems because we weren't really able to see what was like the broader impact of organizing care and aligning the provision of healthcare? And how does that impact even inpatient care later on? Or you know, how does it trickle down to the rest of the healthcare system? And so all of the analyses we found are very siloed, but they don't take into account that emergency care really has these like wide-reaching, broad impacts. And I think to do that, there would have to be some quite creative approaches with the current data available to be able to answer those questions. But I I would love to see, you know, analyses that are really saying, if we make investments in emergency care, how could that truly impact across an entire health system for our country and in what ways could it improve, as I mentioned, either inpatient or other care down the line that we just aren't capturing as it is now. So that's the direction I would love to see future research take. I think it's quite lofty. They're big questions, but potentially with, like I said, more detailed data capture, that that could be possible if it's linked within a broader system, a broader hospital system. I would love to see this impacts captured.
0: I love everything that Kaylin mentioned, of course. And then coming back to this idea of emergency care as a service delivery platform with multiple interventions, each intervention with its own potential cost effectiveness, we simply need much, much more scholarly activity to generate more cost-effectiveness studies to find out what is the utility of each of these interventions. Some are going to be an efficient use of resources and some are not. And while our overall advocacy message is unequivocal that countries do need to invest in and develop emergency care systems, they only have limited resources to do so. And they really need to understand within emergency care, where they should be allocating resources first. The other thing that still needs to be explored is the synergistic impact you can get of packages of care. So it's not just whether the intervention of triage is cost-effective or tourniquets are cost-effective, it's about the package delivery of these things together. Um, Most listeners and readers will be familiar with the idea of economies of scale, which is where the incremental cost of producing a product decreases as efficiencies are gained in mass production. But there's a less well-known concept called economies of scope, where efficiencies are gained by having the possibility of multiple services being delivered through a single platform. So an organized emergency unit has the capacity to treat a variety of conditions, all using a common set of resources. One example is when a patient is in shock. We don't know whether they need IV fluids or blood or pressors or a surgeon or epinephrine for anaphylaxis or some combination of the above. But we know that a well-organized system can transport this patient quickly to a facility. That patient can be triaged to receive immediate care and we can identify what they need to save their life and provide any of the above. So we do think that economies of scope are present in emergency care, but uncovering them is going to require some creative research design and more assessment of packages that contain multiple interventions.
2: Okay, well I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on those issues as experts in the field, and just overall on your study I really enjoyed hearing about it and feel like I learned a lot so I want to thank you again for joining me for the podcast interview many thanks to Dr. Werner and Dr. Risco for doing this interview together thanks for listening